You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. You can be seated. And as you are seated, if you will take your Bibles and turn or turn on to the book of Philippians, we will continue our journey through the book of Philippians together this afternoon. As you're turning there, I've got a question for you. If someone asks you what your life is about, what your life is all about, how would you answer? Maybe even more importantly, if someone asks someone who is close to you, maybe lived with you, what your life is all about, how would they answer? I think the truth is that we demonstrate what we value most and what we believe our lives are all about by what we are willing to sacrifice for. Whether that's your family or your job or your education or even following a sports team, you can tell a lot about what we build our lives around by what we're willing to sacrifice for. Like Paul gives us the answer to what his life is all about, what he believes life is all about in this text before us in Philippians 1 today. Before we get to what Paul defines as what life is all about, Paul has a few things that he wants us to consider. I think a few things that are actually really helpful for us in this season we're in right now. And so we're gonna begin at the end of verse 18 where we left off last week. Paul says here, yes, and I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. This is a key theme throughout the book of Philippians. Joy, rejoicing. 15 times in 104 verses, Paul references this theme here. And here you'll see, if you look back up to the beginning of verse 18, Paul has already said that he will rejoice. For emphasis here, he's calling this Philippian church to rejoice by pointing to his own rejoicing. Paul has joy in the midst of sorrow. Y'all remember where Paul is hanging out right now? Where Paul's spending his time? It's in prison, right? Paul is in probably a prison in Rome during this time. But even in prison, Paul is swimming in a sea of joy in Jesus that not prison, not, not any suffering can take away from him. His eyes are fixed on what is eternal. Paul is determined to live for what lasts, fixing his eyes on Jesus. And because of this, Paul is confident that the Lord is going to deliver him in some kind of way from the situation that he's in right now. And he gives us two reasons why that he is confident that the Lord is going to deliver him. Look at verse 19. It says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So the first reason why Paul is confident that the Lord is gonna deliver him, it says, for I know this is going to happen through your prayers. So first application point today is that your prayers matter. Your prayers matter. We just saying that God is sovereign over us 
But God isn't just sovereign in ordaining the ends of what's going to happen, but also the means of how to get there. And almost always those means involve the prayers of his people. The Africa Bible commentary pointed out helpfully that Paul does not see himself as some kind of super Christian that doesn't need the prayers of other Christians. Paul is constantly asking for people to pray for him if you read his letters constantly asking for them to intercede on his behalf because Paul knows that the prayers of the people of God are used by God to accomplish the will of God. Paul is confident the Lord is going to hear and answer the prayers of his people. And I don't know about you, but it is good for me, for my soul to be around people who pray and expect that the Lord is going to hear and answer their prayers. It's good for my soul to be around people who actually believe that the Lord is gonna hear and answer when they call upon him. So we have mentioned the last few weeks, one of the things we started in the last month was having a prayer room that's going on while this service is going on. So since the beginning of Iron City, we've always had people that have been on the outside of our church service praying for what's going on in our church service. But one of the ways we're trying to deal with some of our space issues right now is having a lot of our people that are right above us that are praying for us while this service is going on. And so I expect that the Lord is going to hear and move among us in a unique and special way because we've got a lot of people praying for us right now. I think we can expect that. The Lord hears and answers the prayers of his people. I know this pandemic has taken a lot away from all of us in different kinds of ways. But one thing a pandemic can never take away from us is prayer our access to our heavenly father. So the first reason Paul is confident here is because of the prayers of his people. The second reason for his confidence says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Again, this second reason for confidence is also a word I think that we need to be reminded of right now. That we can have confidence in the spirit of Jesus Christ working in us, among us, through us. At the end of the gospels, Jesus keeps saying something that is strange to his disciples and something that they don't like. He keeps telling them, I've gotta go, I'm gonna leave you. And it gets even stranger to their ears because it's actually better that I leave you. It's better that I leave you so that I can send the spirit, send the helper, the spirit of truth to come and to lead you into all truth. According to Jesus, it is better to have the spirit of God in you than having Jesus walk around with you. And how do we know that's true? That sounds like that wouldn't be the case, right? I would think I would be a lot more holy if Jesus was walking around with me. But how do we know what Jesus says is true is we look at the life of the disciples, right? In the New Testament and the gospels, we read the disciples, the disciples so often look like a group of bumbling idiots, right? Peter, their leader, is constantly putting his foot in his mouth. Peter, on the night that Jesus betrayed, says, Jesus, I'll never deny you. I'll die with you. But then just a few hours later, around a fire, a little girl, a little slave girl, questions whether he knows Jesus or not, whether he's a disciple, and he cusses at her and denies Jesus. But then within two months, Peter is up proclaiming the gospel in front of thousands of people 
with no regard for his life. What happened? Pentecost happened. The spirit of Jesus came. Jesus last promised his disciples that he would be with them until the end. That promise is accomplished through his spirit, the spirit of Jesus being with us. So hear me, if you are trusting in Jesus, the same spirit that was there making Peter bold on the day of Pentecost, the same spirit that was giving Paul a joy and confidence in Jesus, even in a Roman prison, maybe the best way to put it, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling in you. Prayer and the spirit of Jesus, again, is something that a pandemic or no person could ever take away from anyone who belongs to Jesus. This is the reason for Paul's confidence and his deliverance. It also should be reasons for our confidence that we are gonna make it through this. That God has promised to be with us. He promises to hear us. Next, Paul gets to the main point of this passage. Probably, understandably, rightfully, the most quoted verse in the book of Philippians we see here. But let's start in verse 20. As is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And here's this key verse here. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me to live for Paul. If Paul could define what life is, how would he define it? He gives us a pretty straightforward definition right here, right? To live is Christ, Paul says. To live is Christ. There's actually no verb here in Greek. So it's just living Christ, dying gain is what the construction of this sentence is in Greek. Living is Christ, according to Paul. Tony Morita is a pastor as a commentary on Philippians and really helpful for me to think through some pastoral application here. One of the points that he makes is what Paul says here, for, for me, for to me, Paul says, to live is Christ. But it's helpful for all of us to put an answer in that blank. To you, what is life? For Paul, it was Christ. What is that answer for you? It's sad for us, even those who claim to follow Jesus, often our lives are filled with the pursuits of cheap substitutes, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of pleasure. If living is power, then that means that death to you is gonna be being powerless. If living, if you live for pleasure, that means that death to you is gonna be when the fun is over, when the pleasure stops. And the problem with that is that those things often stop before your heart stops beating. But for Paul, to live is Christ, he says. And if that's true, Again, you can have a joy in Jesus no matter what your circumstances are. 
Joy is much more about hope than it is happiness. You can have a joy in Jesus no matter what your circumstances are. You don't even have to be afraid of death because Jesus has defeated that for you. You can begin, like Paul, to live for what lasts. My ethics professor in seminary was uh, Dr. Russell Moore, and he often would ask in our class, or would say in our class, as Christians, we need to be living for what is going to matter in a trillion years. Again, we need to have our eyes fixed on what lasts. As the old poem says, one life to live will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Do we really believe that life is about Christ? James tells us this life is a vapor, it's here and gone. But the key question for all of us is, what are you living for? Even what are you willing to die for? Sports and sex, and money, and marriage, pleasures, and possessions, and power, all of these things can be good gifts from God, but these things are terrible gods. These are terrible things to define your life in because they can never save you or satisfy you. Only Jesus can do that. You can't even save or satisfy yourself. Again, I don't know about you, but I often cannot trust myself in my desires. I have to remind myself though, that my desires didn't die for me. Jesus did, and I can trust him. And because Jesus has laid down his life for me, my desire now should be to live for him. So if through faith, you can say with Paul that living is Christ, you can also say with him that dying is gain. That for the Christian, death is gain. But let me press a pause right here. As a pastor, I want to have a little aside here. This past Thursday was Worldwide Suicide Prevention Day. And I know there's probably few, if any, in this room that suicide has not closely affected us in some kind of tragic way with people we love. Before COVID-19 came among us, before this pandemic hit, there was mental health issues, not only all around us in society, but in our church family. I know that this pandemic has put almost all of those mental health challenges on steroids in really difficult and even dangerous ways. And I want you to hear me that we have an enemy. We have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And what our enemy loves to do is to twist the truth into a lie and into your destruction. The enemy would love for you to hear this verse tonight, to die is gain, and to twist that in a way that is towards your destruction in a moment of struggle. And I want you to hear me, your life has infinite value. You are created in the image of God. You have dignity and worth because of that. And it is never our job to take ending our lives into our own hands. The Lord by his spirit 
can see you through whatever pain you're in right now. Hopefully through his people coming alongside you can help see you through whatever pain you're in right now. So that you can be able to say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, that you have gone through an affliction. So on the other side, you will be able to better care for those who are afflicted. This is often why the Lord allows suffering in our lives is so that we can be more faithful, more empathetic, sympathetic towards those who are suffering around us. The Lord can get you through this by his word, by his spirit, by his people, hold on. Don't let the enemy twist the truth into a lie to your own destruction. To live is Christ and death will one day be gained for all those who are in Christ. But until that day, Paul makes it clear in verse 22, he's got a lot of fruitful labor in service to the Lord and other people ahead of him. In verse 23, he says that being with Jesus won't just be a little better, it will be a lot better, far better. But he doesn't wanna be selfish in this desire he makes clear. He realizes that he has more work to do so that folks like the Philippians can grow in their joy in Jesus. As long as Paul is alive, he's saying he will be devoted to serving the Lord and serving others. But for the Christian, life and death is a win-win situation for us. Because again, Jesus defeated death for us. It's like someone saying, do you want to do something you love for the people you love and be with them and do things for them? Or do you wanna go away to your favorite place and be with your favorite person? It's a win-win situation for us, even when it's difficult. Because we have, again, eternal value and purpose in all that we're doing. This is what the promise of the scriptures is for the people of God. It is better to be with Christ. But while he has given us breath in our lungs, we are to spend ourselves in service to him and to others, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is what he's called us to do as his people. Paul, because he loves the Philippians, he wants to come and see them. He wants to be with them. But he makes it clear whether he gets to come and see them or not, he wants them to live in a certain way. He wants them to live in a way that reflects that they really believe to live as Christ. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Peter O'Brien's another commentator and what he says is this word here for only is like Paul holding up his finger and saying just one, one more thing. That's actually how the Christian service or not the Christian standard Bible translates this as one more thing. This is one more point that Paul is wanting to make here. One thing, he says, live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? Sounds pretty big, right? What does it mean to live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ? Let me first tell you what it doesn't mean. Who's all seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Will you raise your hand? Saving Private Ryan, 
Uh, well, for those of you who have not, I'm about to spoil it for you. Uh, but it came out in 1998. I looked it up this week. Raise your hand, actually, if you were born after 1998. Okay, wow. Uh, okay. Saving Private Ryan. Uh, it's a movie about, again, this Private Ryan, Matt Damon, this soldier in World War II. There was this uh, rule that uh, our military used if there was multiple siblings that died uh, in war, then the living sibling, the last one would be sent home. And so Tom Hanks leads this battalion to go and save Matt Damon's character because his brothers have died in the war. And on the way there, people in this battalion to go and save him and send him home, many of them die. In the last scene, Tom Hanks is dying on this bridge, finally arriving with Matt Damon. And he says something to him with his last words right before he dies. He says, earn this, earn it, that's what he says. Then he dies. And then immediately fast forwards to Matt Damon's character being this old man in this memorial graveyard of these World War II vets. And he's staying there at Tom Hanks' character's memorial and his wife comes up and he says, tell me I've been a good man. He's asking, tell me that I've earned this. I've earned what was sacrificed for me. This is not the gospel in scriptures. This is not what Paul is saying here. You can never be good enough to earn what Jesus has done for you. As that's the exact opposite of the gospel of message of Jesus. The message of the gospel is free grace, giving to ill, not just undeserving, ill-deserving people. People deserve the exact opposite of grace, but this is what God has given to us. But Paul does say, now those who have been redeemed, saved by the free grace of God, that we can begin to walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel. So what does Paul mean here? Again, he doesn't mean that we are in any way earning our acceptance before God. But what he's saying is those who already have the acceptance of God, those who already have the favor of God in Jesus, we must now walk in a way that's consistent in step with the gospel of Jesus. Maybe an example of this in Galatians chapter two, Peter is called Cephas in Galatians chapter two. Peter is there in Antioch, he's eating with Gentiles. But then some Jewish folks show up and Peter goes back into his former prejudices. He withdraws from eating from with his Gentile brothers and sisters in Jesus. You know what Paul does about this for this apostle Peter who is given in to prejudice and racism again, what does he do? He rebukes Peter to his face in the presence of other people. He says he did this because what he was doing was out of step with the gospel. Peter's prejudice was out of step with the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel faithfully is never less than what we do with our lips, but also has to do with what we do with our lives. Do we walk in step with the gospel? Back in Philippians 1, this phrase here, your life, doesn't really capture the idea of what's going on in the Greek here, this Greek verb. This Greek verb is built on the noun polis, which means city, about being a citizen of a particular place. 
So essentially what Paul is saying is to live as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, to live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, we talked about in our first week when we were kind of given some background to this letter that the city of Philippi was designed after the city of Rome. So people would walk around in Philippi and say, hey, this looks like a little Rome. I think what Paul is saying here is that when people look at the church, when people look at Iron City Church, when people look at the church in Philippi, even though we may be small, say like, this is a little picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. These are people that are citizens of a different kingdom, a much bigger kingdom than what you can see around them. Again, it's important to know as we've talked about throughout this letter that what we're called to do here in walking in a manner that's worthy of the gospel is not something you're called to do by yourself. It's something that we are called to do together as the people of God. And what does this look like? Look at the rest of verse 27 again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So in verse 27, Paul gives us two word pictures here of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But both of these pictures emphasize our need to do this together as the people of God. This first word picture is this Greek phrase for standing firm here. This is a military term, meaning to hold one's ground. I know there's been many movies made about the 300 Spartan soldiers standing against this mighty Persian army. But this is the idea here of soldiers standing side by side, not giving any ground to the enemy. And unlike the Spartan soldiers in Jesus, even though we may be severely outnumbered, we are promised victory. Victory is sure, but we are called as the people of God to stand firm, to hold our ground side by side. And this is the second word picture here, striving side by side, he says. This is actually a word picture shifting to athletics. Most commentators think this is about some kind of team wrestling game that was popular in Paul's day. Daniel Gillen, we're talking about this in our sermon writing meeting on Thursday, said, yeah, maybe a good present day picture would be a rugby scrum, if you're familiar with rugby. I actually watched uh, yesterday uh, the 16th man, this 30 for 30 documentary about the South Africa rugby team and how Nelson Mandela really rallied the country after apartheid. And this South Africa team had to, against all odds, beat this New Zealand team and at this scrum at the goal line to defeat them in the World Cup for them. So it's a scrum. These people are locked arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, throwing their weight against one another. This is the picture, the kind of picture that Paul is painting here for us. Maybe for those who don't know anything about rugby, an offensive line may be a more helpful picture. We must be working together as the people of God. If we are gonna be successful as the church, we must be unified together in our mission. Don't try to compete as an individual in a team sport. 
Christianity was you were never designed to be a lone ranger. I know the Lakers beat the Rockets last night, but LeBron, no matter how great he is, would have looked silly if he was out there by himself trying to take on the Rockets, right? No matter how good or great or strong or powerful you think you are, you need other people. The people of God, we have, yes, individually been saved by Jesus, but we've been saved by Jesus to be a part of a body to be an individual part of the body that needs other parts of the body, to be a part of a family. We all have different roles to play. Any team that I've ever been on that's been any good, I've only been a role player. If I ever had to be more than a role player, then the team wasn't very good. But because I'm so competitive, I like winning more than I like scoring all the points. Again, I'd rather just be a role player and win than try to score all the points and lose. As the people of God, we are guaranteed victory when we work together, when we link arms together. But when we are not laboring together, there can be some really destructive consequences to our relationships, but also to our witness to the world around us. Jesus, the world is going to know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Later in the book of Philippians in chapter four, Paul calls out two ladies by name because they're not getting along with one another. This language of striving side by side is the only other place in Philippians Paul uses it. He speaks of Euodia and Syntyche. He said, they previously contended for the gospel by my side, serving side by side with me. But now they're having divisions and fights with one another over something. We don't know what. And Paul tells them to agree in the Lord to fight alongside each other and not against one another. Again, hear me, brothers and sisters, we have a real enemy. We have a real enemy, but that enemy is not anyone in our church family. That enemy, the real enemy we have is not any other Christians. We have an enemy who wants to destroy us and we need to make sure that we are not viewing one another as an enemy when we've been made a part of the same family. Paul says, when we are striving side by side together, it should have a peaceful effect on our relationships with one another, but also on our hearts, on our inward disposition. Look at verse 28. What is the fruit of this? To not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Not frightened, this phrase here, It's the only place that this is used in the New Testament, but it's used elsewhere in Greek literature to speak of a startled horse is the picture that Paul is painting here. Paul is saying, again, as we strive together, we don't have to be scared and startled like a surprised animal. And there's some pretty scary things out there, but we don't have to fear them the way the world does. Why? because we have the spirit of Jesus Christ, right? A spirit we're told not of fear, but of power, of boldness. Tony Evans says, courage is crucial to the Christian witness. Courage is crucial to the Christian witness. And again, this is the work of the spirit in our lives to give us courage And what are some examples of courage that we think about when we think about our city? 
We think about the history of our city, probably all of our minds at least should go to Dr. King, right? To what was done in the civil rights movement in our city. I recommended the book that we went through together uh, during February was a book called The Birmingham Revolution. It was Dr. King's challenge to the church about his letter that he wrote from a jail cell here in Birmingham that had effects here in Birmingham, but around the world. But the truth is for Dr. King, Dr. King, what happened, the campaign here in Birmingham would have never happened if Dr. King was by himself. Again, one of the things that that book makes really clear, if there wasn't a man named Fred Shuttlesworth, the Birmingham campaign would never happen. If there wasn't other people around Dr. King encouraging him towards courage, then the strides that had been made in our city through many people sacrificing their lives would have never happened if not for others there pushing them, encouraging them. Look what Paul says in verse 29. Paul says, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And again, thinking about the civil rights movement, it wasn't until the nation saw dogs attacking and fire hoses on the news that they begin to say, hey, something's going on here. When they saw people suffering on their TV streams, even young people in the streets in Birmingham suffering, saying, hey, there, there must be something to this. There must be something really wrong. This must be something that we need to investigate more and get behind. The same is true with Jesus' church, brothers and sisters. It is often through the suffering of the people of God that the mission of God is advanced. People seeing you willing to suffer for Jesus' sake. People seeing you saying, hey, there's a mission that's bigger than my life that I'm willing to even lay down my life for. People seeing that you have a joy in Jesus that no suffering can ever take away. We must be willing to say what the early Christians as, as we see in Acts that are willing to suffer even with joy in our hearts for the name of Jesus. And Paul says, when we go through suffering like this and are not frightened by our opponents, he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation. The world may put you down and even kill you. But on the final day, the promise of the scriptures is that you will be raised up with Jesus to new life. That the wicked will face the justice and judgment of God. Paul promises the Philippians, no matter what suffering they may be going through right now, this is how the story is gonna end. You can persevere through whatever hardship with joy in Jesus, because we know how the story is going to end. So, what are you living for? What is your life defined by? I know I've quoted and referenced way more movies than I normally do. One more from one of my favorites. William Wallace, at least supposedly said, that all men die, but not all men really live. The question for us is again, what are we living for? The only way to experience life to its fullness and to experience that where even death is gain 
is to turn away from yourself, to turn away from your sin and your circumstances, and to turn to Jesus and trust in the one who has defeated death for his people. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And we can have a foretaste of that abundant life right now through faith, that we can experience, that we can taste the sweetness of by his spirit. So the call for all of us this afternoon is to look to him, to have a joy in Jesus the world can't take away, for our lives to be defined by Christ so that we can say with Paul that even death will be gained for us. Let me pray the Lord give us grace to do that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that we have access to you through prayer. Father, we pray that you would hear our prayers and that we would not just be hearers of this word, but that we would be doers, that we would not just receive the gospel in our lives, in our hearts through faith, but that we would walk in step with the gospel by your spirit. We need your help to do that. We do not have the resources in our flesh and ourselves, but thank you again that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in us to empower us to live in light of the gospel and light of Jesus. May our lives be defined by Jesus and his work for us and may our lives reflect his love and grace and compassion and mercy to all those around us pray all these things in Jesus' name.